Now, friends, as we come here to Second Peter, I trust that you will follow the text. Now, the Petrine authorship of this book has been challenged more than the authorship of any other book in the New Testament. Dr. Moorhead wrote years ago, the second epistle of Peter comes to us with less historical support of its genuineness than any other book of the New Testament. Now, may I say to you that this is an area that I have spent very little time in in this study of five years. That is on what is known as introduction, on the authorship and that which is critical concerning these different books of the Bible. And I feel like since Second Peter is, as Dr. Moorhead has said, it comes to us with less historical support of its genuineness than any other book in the New Testament. Now, it has caused a great many, even in our day, that say they're conservative. I don't think they are, but they reject Second Peter as belonging in the canon of Scripture. Now, I would ordinarily just pass over this because, to me, it's part of the Word of God, and I think there's an abundance of evidence, both internal and external. But let's face facts today, and I know there will be some that will say, well, the problem with McGee is that he just doesn't know any of the introduction of this book of Second Peter, and so he just plunges into the study. All right, let me go back and bring you up to date on some of the history that's back of Second Peter. It was a long time in being accepted by the church in the canon of Scripture. It was accepted at Laodicea in 372 at the council that met there, and then again at Carthage in 397. This is the first time that the church had taken really this kind of a stand. Now, Jerome had accepted it for the Vulgate, and it's not in some of the manuscripts. For instance, the Peshitta Syriac version, that is not an acceptable one at all. And there are other things about that version that I'm sure we'd all reject. And that, to me, would be perfectly meaningless since it wasn't in there. Now, Eusebius, one of the early church fathers, he placed it among the disputed books. Origen accepted it. Clement of Alexandria accepted it. And he wrote a commentary on it. And it is quoted in the Apocalypse of Peter, which, of course, is not accepted. The epistle of Jude apparently draws from Second Peter. Jude was well acquainted with it. And there are allusions and also quotations from Second Peter in some of the early church writers, Aristides, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Ignatius, and Clement of Rome. Now, you will find also that Martin Luther accepted it as genuine. 
Calvin actually doubted it, but did not reject it, and Erasmus did reject it. Now, that gives you something of the history of the background. But the reason that it has been rejected is, to my judgment, a very fallacious reason. And because of that, I want to say that there is a great deal of internal evidence, especially there are certain autobiographical sections here that to me are absolutely conclusive that Simon Peter wrote this epistle. We'll see them as we come to it. Now, the question has been sometimes raised, why is Second Peter so different from First Peter? Well, I could ask the same question about why is Romans so different from Second Timothy? Are Second Timothy so different from Romans? And yet the same writer wrote both. Paul is the writer. And the explanation, of course, is the subject. And frankly, Second Peter is very much like Second Timothy in this. Both of them are the swan song of the two great apostles. This epistle we're going to look at is the swan song of Simon Peter. And then Second Timothy was the swan song, as we've already seen, of the apostle Paul. Now, there is a very striking similarity between those two. Both epistles put up a warning sign along the pilgrim pathway the church is traveling to identify the awful apostasy that was on the way at that time. Now, you and I are living in the day when that apostasy has arrived. I think just the first delegation has arrived, but it's coming in with all of its might. What was just a little cloud the size of a man's hand in the days of Peter and Paul, today it is a hurricane that envelops the sky and it produces a storm like a tornado. And certainly the proportions are the proportions of a hurricane. Now, Peter warns of heresy among teachers. Paul warns of heresy among the laity. And both Peter and Paul speak in a joyful manner of their approaching death, both of them. Paul says he knew the time of his departure had come. He had finished his course. He had been on the racetrack of life. Now he's leaving it. And he had fought a good fight. And he had kept the faith, and a crown of righteousness is laid up for him. And you're going to find here in Peter that he has a triumphant note at that particular time. Now, both apostles, and this is important, anchor the church in days of apostasy. How will the church be able to stand the storm of the apostasy? They anchor the church on the Scriptures, on the Word of God, as the only defense against the coming storm. And no wonder the enemy has attacked Second Peter, because this is one of the finest shields that's given to ward off the darts of the wicked one as he's shooting at us. And in Second Peter, as we had in Second Timothy... The apostasy is approaching. The storm is coming. Now, how are you going to prepare to meet it? How will you prepare to meet it? Well, there's only one way, and that's through knowledge. 
not only through faith in Christ, not only to believe in him, but to know Christ. This is life eternal, the Lord Jesus said. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And it means that we are to know him and not know about him. I read in the paper the other day where there's an American preacher in Europe who's trying to start what he calls a Christian church without using the name of God and Christ. And that, to my judgment, is the most ridiculous thing that any man could possibly do. Now, if he wants to start some kind of an organization, let him go ahead and do it. But you can't start anything that is Christian without Christ. To attempt to do that would be just like making a peach pie without peaches or like driving a car without any gasoline in the tank. It means that if you're a Christian, you must know Christ. And that means not to know about him, but to know him. And there is a great difference there. The great subject of this epistle is going to be actually the apostasy, but also the thing that will be our defense, and that's knowledge. Now, how does that knowledge come to us? Where is this knowledge? How is it attainable? Well, the only way is through the Word of God. And he's going to talk about the more sure word of prophecy that we have today. Now, you see, the Christian life, friends, is really more than just birth. It's a growth. It's a development. We are to grow, and to me, the key of this entire epistle is the last verse of the epistle. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Now, this is the reason that in my ministry for 40 years, I always made the statement that I am not an obstetrician. I'm a pediatrician. Now, an obstetrician brings the little baby into the world. Well, those of you who listen to this program know that we've already shared hundreds of letters of people who've been converted through listening to the Word of God. But actually, I began the radio ministry to teach the Word of God to help believers to grow up. That is, to take the little baby Christians and enable them to grow. And I said that I'm not an obstetrician of bringing to birth, but I'm a pediatrician. I'm to birth the little babies. I am to give them milk and then try to give them a porterhouse steak every now and then. But that is the area that Peter's dwelling in. And my friend, you will not be able in these days of apostasy to live for God unless... You have a knowledge of the Word of God. Now, I'm going to talk a great deal about that as we get down into the epistle. But I consider this the theme, and I get it the theme through the basis of the words which Peter uses here as contrasted to his first epistle. Now, he does give us certain characteristic words that he used. One is precious. That great big rugged fisherman talked about things that are precious. That's a woman's word. 
And we find it again in this epistle. And we also find the word faith. And it occurs twice here in the first chapter. But again, let me come back to it. The characteristic word is knowledge. It occurs 16 times with cognate words that go with it, of course. The epitome of the epistle is expressed in that injunction that is in the final verse. This man, Simon Peter, went off the air saying this, "...grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ." Now, this is really what Gnosticism was all about. That group attempted to say they had some little esoteric knowledge that no one else had. That's always been characteristic of these secret orders. You know, you learn something, you get on the inside and find out something you couldn't find out any other way. Well, Peter's going to say, as Paul has said, that real knowledge is to know Jesus Christ. And that is the thing that is important. Now, let me say a word here about the divisions of this little epistle. And I have it divided up more than I did the first epistle of Peter. Why? Because there are tremendous subjects here. In fact, I've cut this epistle up like a railroad restaurant pie. Now, let's look at the outline. You have in the first 14 verses of the first chapter, addition of Christian graces gives us assurance. From verses 15 to 21 in the first chapter, the authority of the Scriptures attested by fulfilled prophecy. Then in chapter 2, apostasy brought in by false teachers. Then in the first four verses of the third chapter, attitude toward the return of the Lord, a test of apostates. And then the fifth division is the agenda of God for the world. And that's where you have three worlds in one. That's chapter 3, verse 5 through 13. And then verses 14 through 18, admonition to believers. Now, this is a very wonderful epistle that we've come to now. And back to chapter 1, at verse 1, we have here now the full knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord is the foundation on which Christian character and strength is built. Now, are we ready to begin? And I begin here with verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And when I run across that little word, precious, in this very first verse here, and he used it so many times, and he's about the only one that uses it in the Bible, why, I say, why, this is just like being able to recognize the handwriting of the Apostle Paul. This is like an identification card. When you open your account at the bank, they have you sign their card, the signature card. And when you write a check, they compare that with the signature. Well, this is just like having Simon Peter's signature when you have precious here. But we got a great deal more evidence than this. Now, let me go back up. When he began his first epistle, he just says, Peter, 
Now he says here, Simon Peter. Now Simon was his name. That was the name given to him when he was born. But Peter is the name our Lord Jesus gave to him. And so he puts them both together here. The man of weakness and the man of strength. The rock man and the wishy-washy man. He was both of them. But I tell you, when you come to this epistle and to the first epistle, and he wrote this second one shortly after he wrote the first, why, you can be sure of one thing. He's a rock man now. And here's a man that's going to be crucified for Christ. And I'm not in a position, therefore, to criticize him. Simon Peter, he calls himself a servant, a bond slave. He didn't take some exalted position in the church. He says, I'm a bond slave and I'm an apostle. That's his authority. But he's just one of them, just an apostle, not the apostle, but an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, here is something that is quite wonderful that we have in this verse here. And I'm not going really to have time today to develop this as I would like very much to be able to do. What he's saying here is something that I consider quite wonderful. He says here, "...to them that have obtained like precious faith with us." And when he says faith, I think he means the faith, the body of truth that we call the gospel today. And he says, you've received it, and it's up to you what you do with it. May I say to you that those that hold what I call a hyper-Calvinistic viewpoint that begin to say here that you have to be chosen before you can be saved, and he has to give you the faith to believe, and I'll go along with part of that, but I also want to make it very clear that the reason that man don't come to Christ, it's made very clear to us in the Word of God why they don't come to Christ. He speaks in Second Corinthians, the third chapter, and this is very important, verses 15 and 16. He says, "...but even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their hearts." Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. When it shall turn to the Lord, what's it? Well, what was he talking about? What the modifier would be the heart. When the heart will turn. Now, the reason that men are not saved today is not because of their mind. That's not it. It's because of their heart. There's sin in their life, and they don't want to believe. Don't tell me today that you've been elected to be lost. It's not his will that any should perish. My friend, if you're lost, it's because there's sin in your heart, and you don't want to come to Christ, because that would mean giving up your sin. They've obtained like precious faith with us. How? Through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the righteousness is that which is made over to us when we trust Christ as Savior. You see, he not only subtracted our sins, he added to us his righteousness. We are not just criminals 
that have been turned loose and forgiven, we now have been given a standing before God, and that standing is in Christ, accepted in the Beloved. Now, will you notice, I come down now to verse 2. He says, "...grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord." Now, I've been over these two words, grace and peace, so many times. And I was in First Peter. I'm not going over it here other than to say, again, that it's always put in this order, grace. You must know and experience the grace of God. That is, that God saves you, not because of your merit, your character, or anything in you, but he saves you because of your faith in Christ. And it's because Christ loved you enough to die for you on the cross, to pay the penalty of your sins, to make it possible for a holy God to reach down and save you. Therefore, God saves you by grace. He just saves you when you trust Christ, no merit or anything. Now, when you know that, then you can experience the peace of God. And that's what Paul meant in the fifth of Romans when he said, "...being justified by faith..." We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the marvelous thing here about Simon Peter, and there have been so many that have called him that ignorant fisherman. I want to tell you, as we saw in the first epistle, he deals with more doctrine than any of them in such a brief time. He takes up all controversial matters, handles them in a masterful way, and he does that same thing here. And he is one of the writers in the New Testament that used arithmetic. You notice what he says? Grace and peace be multiplied. Now, he's talking about multiplication here. And what a wonderful thing it is. He says, not only should you experience the grace and peace of God, but he says, I hope it's multiplied. And Paul didn't go in for mathematics, but he says God is rich in grace and that the peace of God just passeth all understanding. But Simon Peter gets right down where the rubber meets the road and takes out the multiplication table and says, these two, hope they're multiplied to you. How wonderful this is. How will it be multiplied unto you? Through some vision you have? Some lazy method that so many are using today? Oh, no. Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, we're back to this word knowledge, and I'll be talking about it again and again in this epistle because it's so important, my friend, the knowledge of him. Paul said that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, etc., and etc., that I might know him. And you will find that Christianity is a person. And it's not only to believe in him, but to know him, to know him, friends. He's the living Savior right this moment at God's right hand. And I want to know him. That's the important thing. I want to know Christ. And you remember that it was Daniel that said, "...but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploit." You're not going to do anything for God. And you are not going to be able to serve him until you know Jesus Christ. Now, how does this knowledge come? Well, we're going to see. Peter won't leave you in doubt on that. He won't let you 
be hanging in air when he gets through with this epistle. That is a knowledge of the Word of God, the sure Word of God. We ought to have a more sure word of faith. And that's the thing that he's going to talk to us about a little later on. But here now, he's talking through the knowledge of God. And you remember, it was Job in the 22nd chapter, 21st verse, "...acquaint now thyself with him, and be at peace." How wonderful, you see. And Peter's talking here about a knowledge of God. Now, may I say to you, and I think that probably we can look at it like this. I want to take someone that has lived and is now passed on. If you should ask me, you'd say, did you know the late President Eisenhower? And I'd say, no, I didn't know him. Well, you certainly heard about him. Yes. You saw him, didn't you? I said, yes. I said, I even saw him play golf. Very few ever saw him do that. I didn't see him hit but one time, and the Secret Service man glared at me, so I had to get out of the territory, but I saw him hit a ball. And he didn't do much better than I do when he hit that ball. But the interesting thing is, I didn't know him. If he was living today and walked into my study right now, I think I would know him. Well, I'd recognize him, but I didn't know him. I never knew how he felt about certain things. And I imagine that Ms. Eisenhower knew him pretty well. I suspect that his loved ones knew him, but I never knew him. And now, what we're talking about here is the knowledge of God. And this is epigenosis. Now, Peter will use that several times, and other times he'll use just gnosis. But epigenosis means a super-knowledge. It means a knowledge that comes by the Holy Spirit taking the things of Christ and making them real to us. I believe that you can know Jesus Christ better than you can know your closest loved one. I believe that you can know him so that you can go to him and tell him things that you wouldn't even dare tell your closest loved one. You can talk to him. May I say to you, to know him is life eternal. That's the important thing. Now, that comes through a birth, born again, as Peter says, not with corruptible seed, but incorruptible of the Word of God that liveth and abideth forever. Well, when you're born, you're just a little ignorant baby. And we need to know him. We need to know him. I never shall forget hearing the late Dr. Herbert Bieber make this statement many years ago at Winona Lake. He said, after I was saved, I went to seminary to find out what had happened to me. Huh? That's good. May I say to you, He went to seminary to find out what had happened to him. My friend, you can trust him and still not really know him. And then there are a lot of make-believers today, and he's going to talk about those later on, and it's very important to make that kind of a distinction. Now, he says here, and I read it again, "...grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord." A little later, he's going to tell you where you can get that knowledge and the only place you can get it. And it's important to know that. There was a sign in the science building in my college, and I don't remember anything I learned about science, 
but I never will forget this sign that was in the bulletin board. And to me, it sure hit home. And this is it. Next to knowing is knowing where to find out. You want to know where to find out about Jesus Christ? In the Word of God, the book we call the Bible. And that's the only place you're going to know him, friends. You can't know him out in nature today. Oh, you can find out something about his power and his wisdom. And you can know him maybe through some experience that you've had or in some meeting. But you're not going to know him personally apart from the Word of God. I come down now to verse 3 here. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Now, he by divine power, he's given us all of the things that you and I need that has to do with life. That is really living it up. I don't know about you. I've always wanted to live it up. I want to live. And that doesn't mean the way the world thinks of it. It doesn't mean to go out and paint the town red. You always run out of paint when you start that sort of thing. Life and godliness. Don't say today God hasn't made an arrangement for you to live for him. He's made every arrangement for you unto us that pertain unto life and godliness. Here we go again, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Again, it's only through the knowledge of Christ that we can really learn to live down here and grow and become a godly person. The only way in the world that you can become the kind of person, a fully developed personality, well-developed personality. The only way in the world that you can become that kind of a person is through knowing Jesus Christ, the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory. And that means to be like him and virtue. Now, that word virtue, and I'm going into just a little detail about that word. I have spent a lot of time with some of these words here because they're important. Now, virtue doesn't mean what it means today. That is, it's not confined to chastity. That's what we think of today. We say she's a virtuous woman. They say there are very few of them around today. I heard the other day in one high school in Los Angeles that 90% of the girls were not virtuous. Well, we think of it as chastity, that it's in that direction. Actually, this word is not in that direction. It was a good Latin word, and it has to do with excellence and with courage. It means that you have the courage to excel in life. You don't have to live a little mousy Mr. Milk Toast life and be a yes man to everything that comes along. You can stand upon your hind feet and you can state your position and stand for God. We need that virtue today to glory and virtue. And the only way we can do it is through knowledge of Christ. This is the formula he's giving to us here. Knowledge of him that hath called us 
to glory and virtue. Now, he begins here in verse 4, something that's quite interesting. He's going to give us a chain. He's preparing us for it. It begins down a little farther, but let me read verse 4 now. "...by which are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises." Nobody but Simon Peter had ever said that, precious promises. He talked about the precious faith that we have. Now he talks about the precious promises that have been given to us. Now they've been given to you and me some glorious, wonderful promises here in the New Testament, by which are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. Now, one of the promises is that of eternal life. He that hath the Son hath life. And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. And you are born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible word of God that liveth and abideth forever. Now, you might be partakers of the divine nature. That is, that you might be a son of God. What a tremendous truth this is. This is something that's overwhelming. When you're born again, you are given the nature of God, friend. You long for the things of God. Don't tell me that the Christian life is a series of little do's and don'ts today. And if you don't do this and you don't do that, you're living the Christian life. My friend, you're partaker of the divine nature. And you want the things of God. That's the thing that's important. Now he says, having escaped the corruption that is in the world today. Well, that in and of itself is a tremendous statement, by the way. A little later on, he's going to talk about these make-believers, and he says they have escaped the pollutions of the world. The corruptions of the world is that which is inside of you. Pollution is what's on the outside. What a difference there is to escape the corruptions. We've got a great deal going today about anti-pollution. A great many people think if you clean up the environment, it will make nicer people. It won't do a thing for them, my friends. The religious people go through an anti-pollution program. They go through little rituals, little washings, little this, little of that, little of the other thing. And how many people are like that today? But my friend, if you're going to escape the corruption of the world, you've got to have a new nature down there. You have to be born again. Partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And my friend, you can be religious to your fingertips. And you can be as corrupt as anyone possibly can be. And I want to tell you, there's some people... When you see them on Sunday and then see them again on Monday, they don't look like the same folk by any means. Why? Well, they have been through an anti-pollution program on Sunday. But the anti-corruption program is when Jesus Christ comes into your heart and into your life, friends. You become a partaker of the divine nature. And that is so wonderful, I can't even begin to tell you 
what all that means. That means that you've been born again. How? Not through corruptible seed, but the Word of God. And this Word is living. If you believe it, if you will trust Christ, you are born again. Now, we hear that so much today, and I think it's become almost a worn-out, hackneyed expression with so many today. But it means you're a partaker of the divine nature. That is, the nature of God. And you haven't lost that old nature. There is a conflict in the life of every believer. And therefore, the best illustration that is in the Scripture is what our Lord gave about that prodigal son. Now, he could go to the far country because he had an old nature, and he could spend his money in riotous living, and he could get down even in the pig pen. But you see, he was a partaker of the nature of his father. His father didn't live in a pig pen. His father lived up there in a wonderful mansion. And the father believed in godliness and cleanliness. And on his table there was nourishing food. And that boy, since he's a son of the father, he has to say it. He wouldn't have been a son if he hadn't said, I will arise, I'll go to my father. And you couldn't find a pig in the pig pen that would say that. They didn't want to go up there. I read another article just the other day. A man raises pigs, and he says they're clean little fellows. Well, he's got a group of pigs that I never knew anything about, but I do know, and we're going to see in Second Peter, that the pig can get washed and cleaned up. And he can become a very tidy little fellow. In fact, he can join the church, and he can become a deacon in the church. Actually, he could become a minister in the pulpit. But he's a pig, and a pig finally is going to return back to that pig pen. Now, the son, he's partaker of the nature of his father. Now, if you're a child of God, you have the nature of God. Isn't that wonderful? I can understand God when he speaks in his word, when the Spirit of God makes it real to me. Hear the Father's voice. And I don't mean an audible voice, but through the word of God. Now, notice, because of that now, he said, and beside this, and very frankly, I feel like saying to Simon Peter, and I rather feel like I know him, beside this, I said, what in the world can you add to the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ and what is it that you could add to being a partaker of the divine nature? He said, well, when you get that far, you just started. You see, what he's saying here is there is something beyond salvation. Now, somebody's going to say to me, what do you mean that there's something beyond salvation? Well, you remember Paul said to Timothy concerning the Scriptures, they're able to make you wise unto salvation. Well, Timothy was already saved. What did he mean by that? Well, that salvation is in the past tense. I have been saved. But it's also in the present tense. I am being saved. And it's also in the future tense. I'm going to be saved. Now, beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. What he shall appear, we shall be like him. Now, I'm not like him yet. Maybe you are, but I have not arrived. But I'm in the process. Now, 
He's going to talk about the Christian when he's born again. He shouldn't stay in the crib and say, da, 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 the rest of his life. And he shouldn't need burping every other day. And he should get to the place where he begins to grow up. Now, will you notice? And I'm reading now. He says, and beside this, verse 5, giving all diligence, now, the Christian life is a very serious business. We have made it sort of a plaything, and it's extracurricular activity. It's not something you take into the business world, according to the present-day thinking. It's not something you take to school with you, or it's not something that you take into your social life, sort of like your Sunday go-to-meeting clothes. You just wear it at a certain time. But the Christian life is a very serious thing, giving all diligence. Now, he has a series of wonderful things here. Add to your faith virtue and to virtue, knowledge to knowledge, self-control to self-control, patience to patience, godliness to godliness, brotherly kindness to brotherly kindness, love. Now, we're going to look at each one of these. But may I say to you that what you have here are not a series of beads. You know, you count off beads. This is not that at all. Nor is it like when I was a boy, we used to get out the box of dominoes, and we'd put them up and push one over, put them up in line, and one would fall, and it would cause the other one to fall, and so on. And a great many people think that's what you have here, that it's that type of thing. Well, actually, it's not that at all. It's very difficult, by the way, to tell you exactly what he means by add to each one of these, add to your faith virtue. And it's not something that is unrelated. And I don't feel like it's putting one brick on top of another brick either. A great many consider it like that. Well, somebody says, but Paul used the figure that we're a temple and one stone is put on another. Yes, but they're living stones. Now, that leads me to another illustration. The Christian life is a growth, and that's the way Peter explains it in his epistle here. You remember, he closes with this tremendous statement. He goes out in a blaze of glory here. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it's a growth, and I'd like to liken it unto a tree. The familiar illustration that I've heard many times has been the little, oh, you know, the old proverb, great aches from little tokorns grow. Only the thing is, it's turned around the other way. Great trees from little acorns grow. Well, that's a good illustration. But let me give you a rather personal one. Several years ago, a very dear lady was a member of my church, and she had come from Oregon. Originally, she'd come from Texas, and she and I always felt like we were kissing cousins because of that. She and her husband in the early days had moved up to Oregon, and she had children up there, and she went up to visit them, and she brought back a little redwood tree. Now, that little redwood tree was not six inches high, just a little bitty fella, and it was in a can. She says, I brought this to you. 
I want you to put it in your yard. Well, if you want to know the truth, I didn't have any place for it in my yard. So I just put it down in front of our living room window. And I left it there with the idea that I would find a place for it and that I would move it. Well, the years went by, and I haven't moved it yet. But you know that tree now is almost as tall as I am, and I'm wondering, the young man that comes and helps me in my yard now, he and I are going to make an effort to try to move that tree. Now, that is the Christian life. It's a growth. It's a development. And my friend, in the woods, there are two things that are happening out there. That which is happening is transfiguration, actually. Either things are living and they're growing, or they're dead and they're rotting, decaying. That is the two processes that takes place in the woods. Now, if you're a child of God, you're to grow. And these are the different attributes, these different characteristics should be that which would actually characterize the child of God. Now, let's look at these, because here is a wonderful, not string of beads. I've heard that used, and it's not that at all. It's actually, here is a tree, and this tree is a growing tree, and these are the different steps of growth that are on it. And by the way, I should say that the little tree had very delicate little, and you don't call them leaves on a redwood tree, but whatever they are, why, they're different today. They've turned out to be great big fellows. There is growth and development there. Now, in the Christian life, there should be that. Now, he says here, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. Now, that's saving faith. That which gave you your divine nature. That which gave you forgiveness of sin. That which made over to you the righteousness of Christ. Now, that faith, add to it. Now, notice the first thing is virtue. Now, I'm going to have to change some of these words because down through the centuries they have been changed. Virtus among the Romans meant something entirely different than it means today. We've saw that last time because this word has occurred before. Virtus. It actually has several meanings. It means valor. It means courage. It means excellence. It represented the very finest of the manhood of Rome. They would say he's a man of virtus, of virtue. And it had nothing to do, well, chastity was included in it, I'm sure. But the important thing was, there was in it courage. And my friend, that is something that's needed among believers to be able to stand up and be counted today for God, to stand for that which is right today. Now, add to your faith virtue, and of virtue, that is, let me use the other word, courage, knowledge. Now, we're back at this word knowledge again. And again, we're dealing with a word that when we saw it up here at the beginning, it was epigenosis. It's now gnosis. 
Now, epigenosis was a super knowledge. Paul, writing to the Colossians, prayed that they might have this epigenosis, the super knowledge. Now, what is that super knowledge? The Gnostics, which were a heresy, claimed they had a super knowledge. Well, it was a secret ritual that they had. Well, what is the super knowledge? Well, the super knowledge today is to know Christ and to reach a place. Now, we're going to come to where Peter's going to rest that knowledge on the Word of God and then show that the Word of God is reliable, dependable, and that it's what it claims to be, the Word of God, and couldn't be anything else. But epigenosis for Paul and for Peter both means this, that there is a growth in your Christian life. And I remember when I was in college, I had doubts. In fact, I was very much of a skeptic at that time and rather cynical. I had a philosophy that nobody could be happy in this life. I promoted that around quite a bit. And I was rather cynical. I believed the Word of God, but I wasn't sure. fact of the matter is, I went to a wonderful minister that helped me so much, and he was a very brilliant man, and told him that if I could not be convinced that the Bible is the Word of God, I'd get out of the ministry. My faith was being torn to shreds in a liberal college. So at that time, I'd have to say I had faith, but it sure was a weak faith. I may sound dogmatic to you, and if I do, why, it's because I'm dogmatic. And it's this. Now, I no longer believe the Bible is the Word of God. I know it's the Word of God. You say, how can you be so dogmatic about that? I'll tell you why. I believed it was the Word of God, and now the Holy Spirit has confirmed it. And friends, you can't have a higher confirmation than the Spirit of God when He confirms the Word of God to your heart and life and makes it very real to you. So today, every now and then, young people ask me about a book on apologetics. Well, that is, they say, a book that will show us the Bible is the Word of God. I have several of them here. I haven't read one of those books in years, but when I was their age, that's all I did read were books like that. Well, I passed that stage. I don't need all that kind of propping up now. And I don't mean to boast. I just mean to say I know it's the Word of God. Some man wrote me not long ago, and he said, the trouble with you is you're too dogmatic. But that's not the trouble with me. There's a lot of other things that's the trouble, but not that. I'm not too dogmatic. I'm just sure. That's all. And positive. If I didn't believe it as the Word of God, wouldn't give it out. And that's what I told that minister and that day. I said, I'll never go into ministry unless I can go in the pulpit and have confidence in the book that I'm preaching. Imagine a pilot taking two and three hundred people across the country, one of these great planes and he has before him their, their chart of whatever they go by, the log, and suppose he says, let's throw that out. I don't believe it. May I say to you, if you and I are sitting back in that plane, we're in trouble. He believes in it, and there's no use going up there and arguing with him about it. He knows. He has information, and it's been confirmed to him. He's flown that route hundreds of times. He knows that, and there are things you can know, and there are things that 
you can not be sure of, but you can be sure of the Word of God. And so there is knowledge. But may I say, virtue means courage. And you need courage to declare the Word of God. And that is the great need, I would say, of the present hour. Now he says, verse 6, and the knowledge, well, the word is self-control, not temperance. That today, again, is another word that just relates to one thing. But not only this word relates to it, but it relates to self-control in every field of life. A man that is self-controlled, and to self-control, patience. Now, that word patience is misunderstood today. And a great many people think it means that you can sit on the freeway of a morning and not worry about getting to work. You just sit there in the traffic jam, knowing that that gives you a good excuse not to go to work. Well, that's not patience, my friend. Now, patience is endurance. It's to be able to endure. And that is something altogether different. There are a great many very impatient people that can endure today. When something comes to them and there's no other way out, they can endure it. They've got courage. You see, courage, knowledge, and then endurance. This tree's growing, you see, and a Christian should be a growing and developing Christian. Now, let's move on here. And he says, and to self-control patience, and to patience godliness. There is another word that's got lost today in the shuffle. And it means just exactly what it says, like God. It means a desire to be like your father. You're born again now into the family of God. You want to be like your father, God-like. And that doesn't mean that you're like God, but it does mean that that's the desire and aim of your life. And just ask this question for you to really think over today. What is the goal and aim of your life? Are you trying to get rich? Trying to make a name for yourself? Trying to raise your family? Is the goal of your life to make sure you get the right kind of antiperspirant? That you today use the right type of odor today, whether you spray it on, or whether you rub it on, or whether you sprinkle it on, or whether you get the giant economy size and put it in your swimming pool and jump into it. What is the goal of your life today? Is it to live for God and have these things developed in your life? Godliness. And godliness is godlikeness. It's to be like Him. And I think there's a song that goes something like that. Oh, to be like Him. Well, it's more than a song. It should be the desire of the individual who is a partaker of the divine nature. There is a time in every boy's life when his father is his hero and sometimes is God. And it's a terrible day when the father crashes the idol. And sometimes they do it. And that's when a boy sometimes grows bitter. Well, we are sons of God. And because of that, why we want to be like our Father. He's not only our hero, he's our God. He is the one we worship and praise. And godliness, by the way, has in it here 
that very thought of praise and worship of God, which is, I think, quite unusual. And the word itself means right worship. And it is a dependence upon God. And it speaks of a life that's devoted to him. Now, verse 7, "...and to godliness, brotherly kindness." Well, we can make that a stronger word or expression than that. It's love of the brethren. We should love the brethren. That is, love other believers. And that is a wonderful thing. I've noted in letters today things that I'm sure that if I met these people personally, we wouldn't be apt to be quite as frank as they are. So many write in and say, well, I love you. Well, I can just say right back on radio, since you're not here, well, I love you too. We should love the brethren. And it's wonderful to have a very sweet and loving relationship with the brethren. Now, he says, and to love of the brethren, love. And that means, the way that I interpret it, love the sinner as God loves him. And that is, God loved him enough to redeem him. But God hates his sin and will judge it unless he does turn to Christ. And I take the position that when we talk about loving the sinner, we're not getting down on his level and participating in his sin, that we're loving him in the sense that we bring him the gospel. We need to recognize that that's the way that you reveal love today. To the loss. Now, let's move on. Verse 8 of chapter 1. For if these things be in you and abound. Now, these are things that are to be in you. You see, Peter's not talking about the externalities of religion. All the way through here, he is speaking of that which is inside the Christian. He's not speaking of rituals. He's not speaking of religion. He's not speaking of some liturgy that you go through. He's speaking of that which is in us. That's the reason he said that we've escaped the corruption of the world, because we are partaker of the divine nature. Now, that corruption is what's inside the human heart. Later on, he's going to talk about the unsaved, that is, the apostates, and they have escaped the pollutions of the world. That is, they go through a ceremony. They play church. They act religious. But the heart is not changed. Now, here he comes right down to it and says, For if these things be in you, what things? Well, these things that he's mentioned up here, knowledge and faith and courage and self-control and patience and godliness and love of the brethren and kindness and love. All of these things are to be in you. Now, he says, not only in you, but abound. And here he starts in multiplying again, you see. He's great with mathematics and abound. They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, barren, of course, here has to do with what I call the fruit of the Spirit. The word actually means idle. You see, you just can't have the fruits of the Spirit by sitting on the sidelines. 
It is the work of the Spirit. You can't work them up yourself, but you can't sit on the sidelines. And therefore, you and I are to yield ourselves to him today. We are to present ourselves definitely to him today and draw from the Lord Jesus Christ, for he's the vine, we are the branches, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, that has to do with these things that he's mentioned, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and self-control is in that list, you see. Now, he doesn't want us to be barren. We're to be fruit-bearing Christians. And then he mentions, nor unfruitful. Now, I think that that now has to do with that which is objective. Being barren has to do with that which is subjective, that which is internal. You sometimes meet Christians, and I'm sure you've had that experience, that they sounded very much like a tinkling bell and a sounding brass. They sound like hitting an empty barrel. Nothing in there. They're barren as far as the fruits of the Spirit are concerned. And fruitful means to be producing something. Does your life influence other people? Or, as I put it, are you getting out the Word of God today? Are you a partner with somebody today and getting out the Word? Standing with those that are getting the Word out. Don't be unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all of this rests upon the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we are coming to a section where he's going to say that we have not followed cunningly devised fables, but that we are following a more sure word of prophecy. That is, the Word of God is that which gives us a knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to show that that's a good, solid, real foundation today, that it's not something that's hanging out in space. It's not Beulah land that is hanging out there in space somewhere and somehow. It's not that at all. It is actually that which is a solid foundation. And that is where we come to know Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, when the Spirit of God takes the things of Christ and show them unto us. Now he goes on to say in verse 9, But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and he hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Now, we're getting down to something that is quite important here, and that is the sterility that is in the spiritual life of many church members today and their lack of enthusiasm it will lead eventually to the place where the believer will actually forget whether he's been saved or not. He'll not realize whether he actually was ever saved. And may I say to you, that is something that I believe today is very much needed in this day. Paul says that we should, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, he says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. Let all things be done with love. Now, when he concluded 2 Corinthians, he says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, 
examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobate? This is a very strong statement. You're to examine yourself, whether you're to be in the faith or not. This idea today that you can live a careless life and still be a Christian and know it is just something that's impossible. You can be a Christian, but you sure won't know it. Or as someone has put it, a young preacher, many years ago, I suppose 20-some-odd years ago, up at Cannon Beach in Oregon, said this to me one evening. He says, you know, Dr. McGee, there are many Christians that believe in the security of the believer, but they do not have the assurance of their salvation. You see, security of the believer is objective. Assurance of salvation is subjective. And he is saying here, he that lacketh these things, he's blind, he cannot see afar off, he has forgotten that he was purged from his old sin. He's forgotten that he's been saved. And verse 10, he says, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling an election sure. Now, what he means is more sure. In other words, the security of the believer is objective. It is something that cannot be disturbed. But I'll tell you, your assurance can be disturbed by the life that you live. And one of the reasons that multitudes do not have the assurance of their salvation is the kind of lives they're living as Christian. You can't live a Christian life in sincerity and truth today and really have the assurance of your salvation. You're bound at night to lie on your bed and wonder whether you've really been born again or not. My friend... The Christian life is something very meaningful. It's something that you have to work at. Now, I've been married a long time, and I never have to lie awake at night and wonder whether I'm married or not. I know I'm married. Why? Because I've been working at it a long, long time, I tell you. And that is the same thing for the Christian life. Make your calling an election here, brethren. Make it more sure. That is, let it become subjective in your own heart to know that you're a child of God. Now he says, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. And it's always interesting to me is this. The number of Christians that get into sin, and I've talked to many of them, and I never yet have talked to one that had the assurance of his salvation before he got into sin. You see, when you lack that, you have no foundation in under you. You're flying in space, and you don't know whether you're going or coming, and you don't know whether you're up or down. You know nothing at all to tell the truth. You have no assurance whatsoever. Now, verse 11, he says, "...for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly." into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Peter will put an emphasis not upon the rapture, but of the coming of Christ to establish his kingdom here upon this earth. We've already seen that. Why? Well, we're going to find out 
down just a few verses, and that is, and I'll drop down and pick up the verse, verse 14, "...knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath shown me." You know, Simon Peter is one man, one Christian, who did not look for the rapture and knew that he would never live to the rapture. Why? Because the Lord Jesus told him that he was to die a martyr's death. And this man was crucified. And he says, he knows shortly that I must put off this my tabernacle. And that's a wonderful way of speaking of death. That is, this body you and I live in is called a tent. Paul calls it that. Peter calls it that. And he's just going to put it off like it's a garment. He's going to move out. And we're all going to move out if the Lord doesn't come in our lifetime. One of these days, we'll move out of this body that we're living in, in this presence. Now, Simon Peter knew he was going to do that. So he speaks of the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because there's no rapture ahead for him. Now, verse 12, "...wherefore..." I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them and are established in the present truth. Now, in view of the fact that he was going away, he could say to them, I'm doing this. I'll not be negligent to put you in remembrance of these things. In other words, this man... He felt called upon to stir up these saints to grow in grace, lest spiritual senility set in. And there are Christians today, and I'm sure you've met them, that are actually spiritually senile. They're doddering and tottering around today, and they don't even seem to have all of their faculties, and they don't have all of their spiritual faculties at all. Now, these are tremendous truths he's giving. Now, he says in verse 13, "...yea, I think it fitting, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance." Now, he says it's fitting as long as I'm in this tabernacle. That is something that is quite interesting. The word that we have, I think it meet, but it's fitting as long as I'm in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance of these things. Now, here again, we have a great truth that's given to us in this verse here. But he says, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, why, I intend to stir you up about these things. Now, the very wonderful thing that we have here is this, that the gospel messages we're going to see is not fables, and it was not something that men thought up to deceive others, and it's based upon the death and resurrection of a person, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole Christian faith today rests upon him, and our knowledge of him rests upon the Word of God. Now, he's going to come to that, and we'll be able to see that next time. This is, without doubt, one of the most important sections that we have in the entire 
Word of God. I have gone over it with a fine-tooth comb in order that you and I might know these things. Now, friends, as we come to Second Peter, the first chapter, at verse 14, he says, "...knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath shown me." Now, when we began this epistle, I said that this is the swan song of Simon Peter. And he's actually, as it were, on his deathbed. And he says, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, and we'll look at that in just a moment, but Scripture attaches some importance to the deathbed statements. You see, on his deathbed, a man will be apt to say something of importance, even if he has not ever said anything before. And if he's been a liar all of his life, the chances are on his deathbed he's apt to tell the truth. Well, at least the Word of God puts a great emphasis upon it. And you go back into the Old Testament, and I'll just lift out a few to illustrate this. Take Jacob, for instance. In the 49th chapter of the book of Genesis, it's a rather sad and yet very dramatic chapter, he calls his twelve sons to stand around his deathbed. And he makes a prophecy concerning each one of those boys that's been literally fulfilled. And when Moses knew that he would not enter the promised land, and he had looked from Mount Nebo into that land, and he was now on his deathbed. He called the twelve tribes, the leaders. And again, he spoke to the twelve tribes. And that's a very important discourse he gave at that time. And Joshua, when he was old and ready to depart this life, he could say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That had been his testimony. And then David, you remember, called Solomon in. And David never really had too much confidence in Solomon. I don't think Solomon was David's choice. Absalom would have been, but Absalom was slain. And he called Solomon in, and he says, I go the way of all the earth. What a picture of death. I don't know who you are, where you are right now, but I can tell you the road that you're on, the way you're traveling. You're going the way of all the earth, and that's to the cemetery. That doesn't sound very good. Somebody says, the Lord may come. If he doesn't come, I still say that you're on that route. Now, he said to Solomon, show thyself a man. I don't think that David had too much confidence in Solomon, but that's his deathbed statement to him. And then even the Lord Jesus Christ, when he came into Jerusalem for that last Passover, and he made it very clear to his own that night in the upper room discourse that it would be his last time with him while he was here in the flesh before he died, rose again in a glorified body. And he said, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. And then we have seen already Paul in Second Timothy, that's his deathbed epitaph. And there you have his swan song. He says, I'm now ready to be offered. 
the time of my departure has come. I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course, and I've kept the faith. And there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all those that love his appearing. Now, Simon Peter says here, and you'll notice, he says, knowing that shortly, and the word shortly means quickly, it means that he knew he had come to the end of his life, and he'd not lived much longer. He was crucified with his head down. Now, some have interpreted that means upside down. I really don't think it means that at all. I think that our Lord apparently held his head up, and as he looked into the heavens, Simon Peter said he didn't feel worthy. That is tradition. And every now and then I make a statement like that. People want to know my authority for it. And may I say to you that tradition has handed down to us many things. And for instance, some time ago we mentioned the great high priest, when he went in, had a chain around his leg. If anything he did wrong, he could be pulled out of there because you're not to go into the Holy of Holies. Well, somebody said, where'd you get that? That's tradition. And it is in Jewish writings. And that is the basis for some of the statements I make. And I try to make it clear at the time where they come from. But apparently, I don't always do that in attempting to move along. Now, what we have here is that he is going to put off, as he says here, put off this my tabernacle. Now, the word in the Greek is skene. It's translated and means literally tent. You see, the body that you and I live in down here is likened to a tent. Peter used that expression, and Paul did too. Paul says, "...for we know that if our earthly house of this tent, our tabernacle, were dissolved..." Now, he goes on to talk about this tent that we live in. Paul tells us how flimsy it is. And if you don't believe it's flimsy... You step out here on one of the freeways that's across this country today, and my friend, you're going to fold your little tent and silently slip away. These are very frail little bodies we live in, and they're nothing in the world but a tent. You see, it is this little body that you and I are in as believers that's put to sleep. As the Scripture says, sleep in the dust of the earth. And when God created Adam... He took his body out of the dirt. He is created out of the earth. And there are about 15 or 16 elements in your body and mine. You find them in the average soil today. And that's the body. The body is put to sleep in the dust of the earth. You couldn't put the soul to sleep there to save your life. And to begin with, the word for sleep means to lie down. Actually, kami, the word in classical Greek, meant to go to bed. And I told a man who believes in soul sleep, I said, well, it means to go to bed. Would you tell me which end of the soul you stick under the cover and the one that you put on the pillow? And he hadn't been able to enlighten me as to that yet. You see, this body that we have, it's just like a garment that we wear, like a little tent. And it's very feeble. And one of these days, we're going to put it aside. And Paul says, For in this we groan. 
And he says, for we that are in this tabernacle do groan. We groan in these bodies, Paul says, and I'm going to do all the groaning that I think is appropriate for the way I feel. Now, Paul also says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. You see, that's the way that Peter and Paul both speak of death. You see, he will come back to this again in what he's going to say to us in just a few moments. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. And this little tent we live in is put down in a grave, and it goes to sleep. The body does, but the soul never dies, and the soul's never raised from the dead because it never dies. And the word for resurrection refers to the body. That's anastasis, and it means to stand up, therefore. Now, there is a way of looking at the rest of Peter that may be a little difficult for you to understand, But I do want to mention it. We have two forces that are in the world today. One is called centrifugal force. That's a force that impels outward from a center. You throw a ball or something on a string around you, and it tries to get loose from you. Then there's another force called centripetal force, and that pulls inward. Well, now he's going to talk to us here about the attitude toward the Word of God and the approaching apostasy that was coming in his day and in our day it has arrived. It was just a little cloud the size of a man's hand in Peter's day and Paul's day. But now in our day, the storm is already broken. Now the attitude is toward the Word of God. Now there are two facets of this subject that he presents the attitude toward the Word of God in the days of apostasy. And these are conflicting forces at work in relationship to the Word. There is that centrifugal force, the force that impels outward from the world that you and I live in today. Then there is that centripetal force that pulls us into the world and away from the Word of God. Now, we're going to look at this, that is, the centrifugal force. The Word of God is the only thing, friends, that can pull us away from the world. The Word of God pulls us away from the world today. Now, I read a letter of an alcoholic, and he began to listen to the program, and the Word of God, I had nothing to do with it, the Word of God pulled him away from the bottle pulled him away from the world, and pulled him toward the Word of God. Now, that's what he's going to talk about here. Because the question naturally arises, he has said we ought to make our call in an election more sure. And he says here, I want you to know that we have an authority. Somebody's going to raise the question, especially in these days, how do you know it's the Word of God? Now, will you listen? Verse 15, Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. Now, here again, he mentions his death, and he uses a very interesting word here. It is actually, the word that he used is an exodus. An exodus. 
And that is that death doesn't end at all. When the children of Israel went out of Egypt, the Egyptians said, we're through with them. This ends it. But it didn't end it. fact of the matter is why they continued on in the wilderness and then entered finally the promised land. And Egypt doesn't seem to be through with them even to this good day. So that it's an exodus that after my decease, my exodus, after I've gone, Peter says, I want you to have these things in remembrance. Now listen to him. Here is the pulling power of the Word of God from the world today. How do you know it's the Word of God? For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we make known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is something that, by the way, is very, very important for us to see. He's going to talk, actually, about the transfiguration. He says here, and let me read this again, "...we have not followed cunningly devised fables." The Bible is not a pack of lies. The Bible is not a fairy story. The Bible is not a myth, but it is very factual. And if you are sincere and you want to give up your sins, God will make it real to you. You see, the veil that's over our eyes is there, not because we're mentally blinded, but we don't want to give up our sins. When you and I are willing, then he'll make it real to us. Now he says we haven't followed cunningly devised fables, when we make known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, I want to say to you that that's just a little disconcerting. When did Simon Peter see the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, he makes it clear that that was the transfiguration. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now, he's referring to the transfiguration. Now, that'll help us explain something that comes to us constantly as a question. What did the Lord Jesus mean in Matthew 16:28? Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, that's caused a great many people to say the kingdom was established then. But unfortunately, we have a chapter break. And chapter 17 of Matthew begins. And what does it begin with? After six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain, and was transfigured before them. Now, he refers to the transfiguration. Now, that transfiguration is a miniature picture of the kingdom in many ways. I can't go into a great deal of detail today, but you have there Moses and Elijah that were with Christ. Moses representing the law 
and you have Elijah representing the Old Testament prophets, the law and the prophets. And what are they discussing? His decease. They're talking about his decease. You see, his exodus. Death for the child of God is an exodus. It's like going through a door from the room of this world into the presence of Christ. That's what they were talking about, because that's what they had written about in the Old Testament. And then you have these three apostles there. They represent the living saints, and Moses and Elijah, the dead ones, the Old Testament saints, if you please. You see, at this time, the church had not come into existence, and those three men that were with him there are going to constitute part of the body of believers. They would be the apostles. Now, we have here the miniature picture of the kingdom. And when they came down from the mountain, there was that man with that demonized boy, and the other apostles were hopeless. They couldn't do a thing. And there were those outside that were jeering and ridiculing. What a picture that is of today. And that is the kingdom as it is today in abeyance. He's up yonder at God's right hand. Living and dead saints are with him. The Old Testament saints are with him also. Now, the picture's down here in the world. And we are living in a demonized world today. And my friend, all you have to do is read your paper or look in the newscast on radio or TV and you know exactly today that this world is in a terrible mess. And the interesting thing is the church ought to have a message today of hope and power for the world, but they can't help the demonized world, and they're not helping it. They need help. And as a result, why today the world can ridicule and does ridicule, and I think in one sense rightly so, because the church is not about the Father's business as it should be. Now, we've come to the 19th verse. And this is, without doubt, a very remarkable section of the Word of God, as I'm sure that you have discovered so far. He said here in this first part, he said that he was with the Lord Jesus, that is, Simon Peter was with the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He said, we were eyewitnesses, we saw, we heard. And then he says this strange thing in verse 19, "...but we have also a more sure word of prophecy." And with prophecy doesn't necessarily mean the prediction of the future, although he certainly includes that. But he means the entire word of God, because he speaks of the Scripture as having been spoken by God. And he is the one, and the prophets merely, as he'll make it clear here in just a moment, they were a little bit more than a manuensis. They didn't take down dictation. They expressed their own feeling and thought. But nevertheless, God, through that, got his complete will and word through to man. And that's the thing that makes it very miraculous. You see, the Word of God is not only divine and not only deity, but it is also human, very human. It's like the Lord Jesus. He was both God and man. And the Bible is a God book, and it's a man book. 
It deals right down here with the human life and gets right down to the nitty-gritty, right down here where you and I live and move and have our being, but yet it is God speaking to man in a language that he can understand. Now, he says, therefore, the word of God's better than seeing and hearing. The word of prophecy is made more sure, and that, by the way, is more accurate. You see, the Word of God is a light, and it's a lamp. It's a source of light. It is the sun in the sky, if you please. And again, if I may come back to the figure of speech I use, it's a centrifugal force. As the sun gives out its light, throwing it out throughout the universe, the Word of God sends out a light and a force, a power, if you please, And it's the only supernatural thing that we have in this world that is tangible. This is the only physical miracle that we have today from God is the Word of God. Now, it is going to be that until Jesus comes and the day star arises in our heart. Now, let's move on here because he calls this unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your heart. And that day star is when the Lord Jesus will come. He's called the bright and morning star in Revelation. Until he comes, this is the light that is like a centrifugal force going out into the world. And it is that that's drawing men away from the world, throwing them away from the world, and putting them into the arms of God. What a picture we have here. Knowing this first. Now, here's the first thing we should know, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, this word private interpretation and probably ought to deal first with the word knowing. And the word knowing here is this. It is knowledge that comes not only from the Word of God, not only from facts that can be ascertained. If you have an honest heart, you can find out whether the facts in the Bible are accurate or not. But these are things that you can know by the Holy Spirit making them real to you. And as we've said before, I have now passed the stage that I was in in college. In college, I wanted the Bible proven to me. If I found that archaeology, they dug up a spade full of dirt somewhere and it proved a fact in the Bible, well, I'd clap my hands like a little child and shout with glee. It's wonderful. I don't do that anymore. I don't need a spade full of dirt turned up. When the Spirit of God himself has made the Word of God real to our hearts, and we've seen its transforming power all over the world in letters that we are receiving. Friends, don't tell me there's not power in the Word of God. There is power there. And here is something that we can know. And the facts confirmed by the Holy Spirit make it real. And now... He says here, something that we need to pay attention to is of not any private interpretation. Now, what he's saying here, no prophecy of the Scripture is to be interpreted apart from other references to the same subject. And that's the reason that today I 
put up such an objection to this idea of just pulling out one little verse and building a doctrine on one little verse. My friends, if you can't get a body of Scripture to confirm your doctrine, then you better not build it on one little verse of Scripture. It always reminds me, and there's so many do that today, reminds me of the fellow that I saw in the circus years ago riding a unicycle. You know what a unicycle is? A bicycle is two wheels. A unicycle is one wheel. And he, boy, he was way up in the air just riding on this one wheel. And he had to juggle around and balance himself. And my, he had a lot of problem. And apparently he was having a little difficult with his unicycle. And all of a sudden, it went out from under him, and he fell backwards, and believe me, he got a fall. And I thought, now, how many Christians are like that today? They base what they believe on just one verse. Now, it's wonderful to have one marvelous verse. But friends, if it's a great truth, there'll be two verses. And the chances are there'll be three. And I'm of the opinion there'll be a whole chapter on it somewhere. Therefore, don't build it on one. What he means here, no passage of Scripture, you can interpret it by itself. You need to confirm it with other Scriptures. Now, he mentions this, "...for the prophecy came not at any time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit." Now, the prophecy, and he's referring here definitely to the Old Testament, it didn't come by the will of man. In other words, Isaiah didn't sit down and say, I think I'll write a book, and I want to get it to the publisher because I do need some money, and he'll give me an advance if I write a good book. He knows I'm a good writer. So I'll just sit down and write a book and send it to the publisher, and he'll send me an advance check, and then I'll get royalties for it. The way Isaiah did it was, listen to Peter, the prophecy came not at any time by the will of man. He didn't think it up, but holy men, and holy here means that the man is not some super-duper saint. It means holy in the sense they were set apart for this office. And that's what the word holy actually means. You're set apart. And if you're a holy Christian, that means you're set apart for the use of Christ today. And holy men of God, they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And this is a very delightful figure of speech that is used here that actually our translation doesn't bring out of the Greek. It's a picture of a ship at sea, or a boat, if you want to have it that way, a sailing boat or a sailing ship. And the wind gets into these great sails and bellies them out and moves the ship along. Now, that's the way the Holy Spirit moved these men. We have here in California every year... I guess they would call it a yacht regatta. And they line up and start out for Honolulu, Hawaii, coming around Diamond Head, way out there. And you've got to be a rich man. It can take off a lot of time. 
or you have to be a man of means to own a ship. I had a doctor that performed an operation on me one day, and then the next day he took out on one of these boats. That sure left me in a bad shape. But he left a good doctor, of course, to take care of it, but I'd have much rather have had him. But here he is sailing out to Honolulu. And I asked him when he got back something about it. And he was telling me about how they put actually on an extra sail when they get a good wind. And they put that extra sail out, and it just moves the boat right along. Well, that's exactly what you have here in this passage of Scripture. These men set apart for this, the Spirit of God moves them along. Now, I want to call your attention to something that's very important again. This is Simon Peter's deathbed statement. This is his swan song. And in Second Timothy, you have this deathbed statement of Paul the Apostle. You have his swan song. Both of them emphasize the Word of God in days of apostasy that we're living in today. Paul could say all Scriptures given by inspiration of God. And you have that same picture carried along by the Spirit of God so that God could take a man like Simon Peter here, or a man like Paul the Apostle. They're two different men, friends. They wrote. Their style was different. Simon Peter, the critic, likes to say he wrote very bad Greek. Well, he did, but Greek wasn't his native language. He lived in Palestine. He lived up by the Sea of Galilee. And he didn't speak Greek as his native language. It was a second language. Maybe he didn't do too well with it. But I took the stuff for nine years, and you ought to see what I do with it. May I say to you, I don't criticize him. I think he did a very good job here. But you see, Paul the Apostle and Dr. Luke, they wrote eloquent Greek. In fact, some of it is classical Greek. They could use periodic sentences, and it's wonderful. But... The point is this, the Spirit of God can take a man like Simon Peter, a fisherman, not destroy his personality. God's not using these men as fountain pens, ballpoint pen, just writing with them. What he's doing is he doesn't destroy their personality. He doesn't change these men. Simon Peter's going to write like Simon Peter and Paul and Dr. Luke, brilliant men, are going to write in a more eloquent in a more cultured language and grammar that they'll use. But the Spirit of God will use both of them, and God will get over to man exactly through these men, just exactly what he wanted to say, so much so that if he spoke out of heaven today, he'd have to say something he's already said, because he's already said all he's going to say to man in this day. And he's gotten it through to us, so that you have in the Word of God, a book that's a God book and it's a man book. It's both human and divine. Just like the Lord Jesus, as we've said. He was a man, could sit down and weep, and could sit down and rest. He could sleep in a boat. Why, he's human. But I tell you, that one that could weep at a grave could raise the dead. 
That one that could sit down at a well because he was tired, he could give the water of life to a poor sinner. And on a boat, he could go to sleep, but he could also still the waves. Yes, he's man, but he's God also. And this book is the same way. It's a God book. And that's what Simon Peter is saying here. You've got something under your feet today. You're on a sure rock. You can believe something. No wonder that the Word of God has been attacked more than anything else. Why? Because the enemy today, if he can get rid of the foundation, the building will come down. It's almost nonsense to go into the pulpit and preach a sermon showing that you don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. That, to my judgment, is as silly and as insane as the poor fellow out at the insane asylum. There was a vista there, and he went by, and here was a man with a pick at the corner of the dormitory, and he was digging at the foundation. And the vista wanted to be sympathetic with him, says, what are you doing? He says, I'm digging out the foundation. Can't you see? And he said, yes, but he says, don't you live in the building? He said, yes, but he says, I live upstairs. May I say to you, to try to take out the foundation, my friend, I don't care what floor you live on, it's coming down. This Word of God is the solid foundation on which we rest.